All right, and good morning, Ridge Point Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, man. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Listen, we are blessed to have like a number of worship leaders that grace our stage on any given week. But I love when, when David Calhoun leaves. I know there's a lot of distractions with the power surge, what happened. So I don't know if you're able to focus on his words. But I heard him kind of talk, similar talk in the first service. And sometimes I'm like, man, when David Calhoun is done talking, like that could be the message. Let's just go home. Like that was really powerful. So hopefully you're able to focus on that this morning. Uh, I was like, man, I'm done. I don't know how I'm going to follow that up. Just such gracious words as we talk about the, the role mothers play and how thankful we are to to God who equipped our mothers to be able to bless us in such a powerful way. But listen, we're really, really glad you're here. On both services this morning, we had the game we played where moms reached in their purse. And, and I was convinced, especially in the first service, that if we would have said, hey, does somebody have a Christmas tree this morning? That there are some moms here that were like ready to go and they're racing. But here's the thing I saw about the moms, the grace that they had that if we, we couldn't play this game with fathers because like there was a race that took place and when it was done, they, in both services, I saw this happen, where moms like raced each other and then they got done and they hugged each other. <laughs> Guys would be like throwing elbows and knocking each other over and on the way tripping them. And so moms, you're so thankful for, for the role that you play and the grace that you show, uh, even when we definitely do not deserve it. And we're thankful to God for giving us the moms that we have. Uh, so moms, again, thank you for being here and for, we celebrate you in your special day. And we also get to celebrate by wrapping up this series we've been calling The Game of Life. We kind of uh, targeted that we'd wrap this series up on Mother's Day as we finish up talking about the family. And we'll get to why that's important in just a second. But I want to begin this morning uh, by talking about movies, which is a weird spot to start on Mother's Day. But I happen to like movies. Now, I don't particularly like every style of movie or every genre of movies. And one of the things that I'm very particular about is that if I watch a movie, I love story. So if, if, it, if it has a compelling story, like I can get kind of sucked into the story and that's all I really care about. It doesn't have to have all the big bang, flash, all that stuff happening. As long as there's a compelling story, I get wrapped up in that story. But one of the things that I don't do is I don't often watch a movie twice. If I watch a movie and I enjoy it, that's awesome. But I'm not going to go back and I'm not the type of person that like memorizes all of the words from a specific movie. Like, that just isn't me. I watch a movie once, I enjoy the story, and then I get out and go on to something else. But there's one particular line of movies that I would go back and watch over and over and over again. This, this, this masterpiece of a series called the, the Rocky series. <laughs> like, I remember going back, like, when I was really, really young, I think, uh, watching Rocky when I was really, really young, the original one, and then Rocky two. I didn't care for as much, but when it got to Rocky three. And Rocky Four, like that's when it became my jam. I really wanted to watch it. And to this day, I won't watch a movie again and again. But if there's a Saturday afternoon and I'm flipping on and, and like Rocky's on the USA Network, like I'm going to stop whatever else I'm doing. I'm like, I'll watch Rocky Three or watch Rocky Four over and over again. In particular, if you remember Rocky Four, in Rocky Four, there was this moment. Now, the storyline was in the original Rocky. Apollo Creed was, was the world champ, and Rocky was the underdog, and he eventually goes on to defeat Apollo Creed, and, and at first they're nemesis, and, and, and then they become uh, kind of friends, and best friends, and sparring partners. Eventually, Creed retires, and Rocky is the world champ, and he does his thing, but then, then Creed says, hey, I want you to start training me again, because he wants to go back in the beginning of Rocky Four, and he wants to fight the latest version of of the bad guy. And the bad guy in Rocky IV was the Russian by the name of Ivan Drago. And Drago was played by Dolph Lundgren. 
And he played a part, like Creed was kind of old and ancient, and, and, and here, comes, here comes this big Ivan Drago, and he's, he's younger, and he's stronger, and he's faster, and he's hitting with all these thousands of pounds of pressure. And they, they build him up as, as the, super anti, the, the super nemesis, the anti-hero in the story uh, of, of maybe all the Rocky series, because they're injecting him with steroids, and he's already bigger than everybody else. And, and he comes out, and in the beginning of Rocky Four. He fights Apollo Creed. And there's this, this matchup of the younger, stronger guy versus this older guy who'd retired and came out of retirement. It's, it's, it's Russia versus USA. It's the, the bad guy who uses drugs against the, the good guy, and he comes out. And, and Apollo Creed comes out in all his American flag paraphernalia, and it's like this big storyline. And he comes out, and he starts fighting, and he has a little bit of success early on. But eventually, the, the younger, stronger, faster, cheating Drago starts to get the better of him. And there's a point in, in that fight that just for me was like, like an epic part of, of this whole series of the Rocky series. And that is when, when Drago's starting to really get the better of, of Creed. And Creed is one of those guys who he won't give up, he won't quit, and he's starting to take punch after punch, and eventually he's defenseless, but he's not falling down. And he's just taking punch after punch after punch. And eventually you see Creed's wife in the stands, she jumps up and says, somebody... Stop the fight. And then his longtime trainer standing over in the corner next to Rocky, and he says, throw in the towel. And Rocky picks up a, a blood-laden towel, and he sits there with this look of bewilderment on his face, saying, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, should I throw in the towel, or is there a chance he's going to come back? And, and maybe if we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, maybe there's a chance we'll have success. And so instead of throwing in the towel, he holds on to that towel too long. And eventually Drago hits him with such a hard punch that not only does it knock, him, knock out Apollo Creed, but it eventually he succumbs to that and he actually dies because of that punch. What an encouraging way to start a Mother's Day sermon, right? I, I promise we're going to get there. But, but the point is this, why I tell that story is because there's a point in that when Rocky has this look of bewilderment on his face. And he says, I, I don't know what to do. And, and he should have thrown in the towel and he doesn't. And I think sometimes, and listen to me carefully on this, I think sometimes when it comes to our relationships, there's a moment that we're supposed to throw in the towel. Now, now be careful, because I'm not going to say what you're thinking I'm going to say. I'm not saying we're supposed to give up on our relationships. That's not it at all. In fact, the very beginning of this series, we said, as long as there's breath in our lives, if there's, if there's a marriage that is, is on, the ed, on the edge of, of falling apart, as long as there's breath in that relationship, there's a chance for that relationship to be restored. If, if there's friction in a family, if, if, if mother and son or father and son haven't talked in years, as long as there's breath in our body, there's a chance because of what Jesus does, he's the ultimate restorer, there's a chance for him to restore relationships that seem like there's no chance. And so as long as there's breath, there's a chance. I'm not asking us today to give up on relationships. I'm asking us to give up on our plan for relationships and to give in to the plan that Jesus has for us. There's a big difference. And so this final message, as we wrap up the game of life, we've looked at how the family is changing very rapidly. We've said throughout this series that what was regular has become irregular, and there is no more ideal nuclear family, that everybody has significance, 
and everybody has purpose. And so we walk through, here's what it means that, man, man if, if you're a part of the church and if you're single, if you're in a, a different type of, of relationship, if, 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 you're, if you're sitting here and, and it's, it's, it's stepkids or it's adoptive kids or it's foster kids or the, the, the family relationship has changed so much. And yet the general principles of the Bible can still be foundational to us saying, man, when, when it seems like that relationship is faltering, when it seems like that relationship is falling apart, that if we could see through the muck of stuff that we've created, the, the problems that we have created because we're trying to do things our own way, if we can see through all of that and find a way to purpose Jesus as the center of those relationships, he can redeem and restore those relationships. And so to start off in this series, I want to go back to the very first relationship. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the very first marriage taking place. Now, prior to this in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read the final two verses of Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Prior to this, God had created Adam, and once he creates Adam, he, he, he had created all the animals, and they all have a helper, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone, so he's going to make Eve out of the rib of Adam, and she's called woman. I think that's because when Adam saw her, he looked at her and said, whoa, man, God, you're good, and all the husbands now can look at your wife and say, whoa, man, God, you are good for doing this for me, but, but he looks at her, and, 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 he, and she's called woman, and her name is Eve, and, and then it says this, and this is, this is so foundational to every single marriage from this point on, and here's the deal, I get a, I, it's my privilege, I love to walk through young couples as they're preparing for, for marriage, and, and we require three different sessions of marriage counseling, and, and, and we're going to give a little bit of a, of a lead into some of the stuff we talk about, but in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it says, here's, here's the principle. Now, if I was a cheesy preacher, and I'm trying not to be a cheesy preacher this morning despite the wall man joke, I'm just saying. Um, but, but if I was, there's a principle here that we can see. It's called the leaving, the cleaving, and the weaving principle. Like we just talked through that this morning. We're not. We have other stuff we have to get through. But it says, therefore, a man shall leave. There's the leaving. Leave his father and mother. Hold fast to his wife. The leaving, the cleaving is hold fast to your wife, and they shall become one flesh. Your lives are woven together. So we have the leaving, the cleaving, and the weaving principle. Now, here's the thing. When I walk through those young couples as they prepare for marriage, in the final session, I, I give them this statement. And I said, here's a statement I learned way back when I was in college, and I want to pass this statement on to you. And then I want to ask you what you think this statement means. And the statement is this. Marriage transcends family. So I give them that statement as part of their homework. I give them a a couple weeks to think about that. And I say, what do you think that means? That statement, marriage transcends family. What do you think that means? And and ultimately, what what the answer to that is, and if you're on the verge of eventually thinking about marriage, you'll probably face that question if I'm doing your counseling. And so you're gonna get a head start on that this morning. Marriage transcends family means outside of our relationship with God, the most foundational the most meaningful relationship we're ever going to have is the relationship that we have with our spouse. That's how, that's how God created it to be. And if we want to do things right, that's how we're supposed to kind of walk in that. The problem becomes that other parts of family can get involved in it. When we're younger, a challenge comes in one area. As we get older, the challenge comes in another. And the biggest challenge early on in marriage, and I saw this in, in my life, and personally, when I was growing up, when we first got married, when Beth and I first got married, 
and then I encountered this later on as, as I became older, became a dad. The biggest challenge young couples face early on in marriage is that often the, the parents of those couples don't want to be the ones to let go. That's a challenge. I saw that in, in because almost always, not always, but almost always, it's the, the mother of the, the, the groom and the father of the bride that doesn't want to let go. We're afraid to cut. Some people are already looking at mom and dad in the, in the church this morning and not judging anybody at all. But, but that's often the challenge. And I saw that with my mom. And then something crazy happened. I became the father of a daughter. And all of a sudden I understand personally why that's so powerful. Listen, I love my sons entirely. I love my sons as much as I love my daughter, and yet there's something different about the relationship that, that a mother has for her sons and, and that a father has for his daughter. And, and all of a sudden, that became more real, and I understood why. Man, when that day comes, that's going to be much more of a challenge. And it's often the first challenge that young couples face, even though God, when he institutes marriage, says, here's what's supposed to happen. A man is supposed to leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two are supposed to become one. Even though it's supposed to happen, often as parents, what we want to do is we want to meddle. We want to get involved in our kids' lives. We want to say, hey, I, I want to go and, and I want to make sure that you make this decision right. And, and I know this because I experienced this myself. Like, like parents, we, 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 we have the absolute best intentions. It's not that, that you're a bad person for, for doing this. We, have a, we want to see our kids succeed. And so what we do is we say, well, I don't want them to fail, and, and so I want to make sure they make the right choice. And so let me, let me kind of twist the situation so they make the choice that I want them to make. And the problem with that is, is number, let me take this pressure off of you right now. Your kids, when they grow up and they get married, guess what they're going to do? They're going to make mistakes. We did when we were younger, and by the way, we still do today. And the second part of that is, is sometimes the way we've done stuff all along hasn't been right. And so we have a tendency to repeat some of those behaviors. And so early on in marriage, this, this leaving, cleaving, and weaving principle is, is foundational for, for you know, a young husband and a young wife to, to seek Jesus in that relationship and not have the pressure of everyone else saying, hey, you should live this way and you should do this and, and all that stuff. And so God says, listen, leave your father and mother, hold fast to your wife, the most foundational relationship that you're gonna have because God knew that the family was the foundational building block for society. And ultimately, thousands of years later, family became the foundational building block for the church. Like the family was a super big deal. And so God said in Genesis chapter two, I'm gonna make woman, and once I make woman, there's gonna be a marriage, and they're gonna come together as husband and wife, and that is gonna become foundational for all of society. And I wanna make this institution the first institution that I bring about. As soon as that happens, we pick up in Genesis chapter 3 with where we're going today. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see, if you're taking notes, Satan's plan from the very beginning is to destroy the family. Satan's plan from the very beginning is to destroy the family. He knew that, okay, if, if God is going to use the family, because we see this, the legacy of faith is passed on in families that are foundational in faith. And he says, if the family is a strong building block, then the best thing I could do is I could get in and I can destroy that family relationship. And if I destroy that, the strength of, that, of those bonds are going to be gone and the chance of success being passed on is going to be very, very much lower than it would have been if the family had success. And so Satan says, literally from the very beginning, Genesis 2, we see the first ever wedding take place and God officiates that wedding. Adam and Eve are now married 
And then from the very beginning, as soon as that happens, the next verse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We'll get to what he says in a second. That's part of the second point. But how does Satan set about to destroy our families? Three words I want us to get. How does Satan set out to destroy our families? The first one is through division. He wants to divide us. Notice as we look at the text here, it says that he approached the woman. He approached Eve by herself. We don't have any record that Adam's there. So he approaches Eve and he says to Eve, who, by the way, wasn't there initially when, when Adam was given the instruction. He approaches Eve by herself. And he says, let me go and get her because he knows that when, when, when there's families together, when there's families working together on something, they're, they're stronger than the sum of their equal parts. And so if they're together, they're going to be stronger. If they're, if, if they're together, there's going to be accountability. There's going to be encouragement. But if, if I can get them apart, if I can get them where they're not communicating, if I can get them where there starts to be doubts seeping in, all those things, if they can be divided, the chance of their success minimizes instantly. He knew this. He approaches, as far as we can tell from reading the text, he approaches just Eve there. And he begins with a question that's going to get to the second D we'll get to in just a second. But he begins with this question when he divides the two. And here, here's why that's valuable. It's because I get a chance to, to talk to couples sometimes that are doing really, really well. And sometimes when they're not doing so well. And the thing I see is often the, the, the strength of the relationship is, is kind of leaning on, it's leveraged upon how closely the couple is working together. How much they're on the same page when it comes to the way they do life and the way they raise their children and how they do finances. How much time they spend together as a couple. And often when they start to have struggles, it's, well, I started dealing with this, this pressure at work and I didn't want to bring it home. And so I came home and I didn't talk about it, but still it was weighing on me. Like still, it was, it was always in, in my constant thought processes and, 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 and I didn't know what to do with it, but I didn't want to share that burden. And so I tried to do it all, all alone. And then I started to feel this, this financial pressure and, and I didn't want my husband or I didn't want my wife to de- have to deal with that. And so because of that, I kept that stuff to myself. And, and before we know, there was isolation in that relationship. See, God said, I want the family to be a a valuable part of society. I want to be a building block for society. And Satan says, okay, if that's, Satan says, if that's the plan, then I'm going to get in right away and try to destroy the building block that God is trying to create. And he begins that by saying, let me divide the two. If they're together, there's strength, but if they're isolated, there's weakness. And I want to get in and I want to destroy the two. And it isn't just husbands and wives. It can happen with kids. All of a sudden there's isolation. Our children grow up, they become teenagers, and they isolate themselves more and more. And then we start to, as parents, say, okay, if that's how you're going to be, I'm going to go do things my way. And there's, there's more and more isolation instead of coming together and, and talking things through. And the enemy says, if I'm going to destroy the family, I'm going to destroy the family through isolation. They'll stop working on things together. They'll stop being on the same page. And destruction is around the corner. So it begins by dividing the two. And then he asks this question, which gets us to the second D in the way that Satan's trying to destroy our family relationships. The second D is through doubt. Through doubt. At the end of verse 1, it says, 
he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Two things about this. First of all, before we even get to the, what, what, what he says, which is not at all what God said, before he, we even get to that, she uses a different name for God than the name that Eve had become familiar with. See, throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of names for God. And early on in creation, we see this powerful name of God. It's the name Elohim. And and in creation, we see that. But when Adam is created, God starts to use the personal name for God, which is the name Jehovah. And and he starts, that's what they'd become familiar with. But but here we see him going back to that name Elohim, saying, hey, that God that's mighty, and maybe he's the God that's out there. Maybe he's not the personal God that you think he is. Did he give you such a rule as to say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we know that's not the case. In fact, earlier in Genesis chapter 2, it says this. God says to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So, so Satan comes in trying to trip her up and say, hey, does, does that powerful God who's distant, who's remote, did he say you can't eat of any of the tree? He tries to bring in doubt into the conversation. Eve is, is wise enough to say, well, no, that's not what he said. But there's already a little bit of confusion that's running in because that's what, Satan tries to take uh, the words of God. He tries to take scripture and twist scripture. He tries to do it much later with Jesus himself when he's tempted in the wilderness. Satan will try to take scripture and twist it. And, and, and confuses Eve here because it says this. And the woman Eve said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, now this is important, this is what she said, what God said, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now one part of this statement God had definitely not said. What part of it was it? Neither shall you touch it. God had never said anything about touching the fruit. He said, don't eat of that one tree. If, if you eat of the tree, you're going to die. We know that for sure that already she's like, well, you're not supposed to eat that tree or touch it. Like, we don't even go near it. Uh, we're not supposed to touch that. If we touch it, we die. So already she's, she's confusing words a little bit. But I want us to see this because, because I think this is where most of us reside, and we don't even know it. Her words about what God said is, well, God said we're not supposed to eat from that tree, and if we eat it or touch it, we're going to die. But actually, if we go back and look at it, God had said, he begins with what they can do. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, except for one. But Eve begins with, we're not supposed to eat from the one tree. God said, we're not supposed to eat from the one tree. Now, now here's the point. You and I, today, we have a, a sin nature. And what that means is we are naturally inclined to go and do this. In fact, if, if, if we had a, a huge garden right now, especially who has, who has kids under five years old that, that are here right now? That you have kids in the house right now. You're under five years old. If your child who's under five years old is up and, and, and ambulatory and able to move and run and everything, and if you were to say to them, hey, you can, you can eat of any of the tree except for you can't touch that tree, what tree would your child under five run towards? Right away, okay, let me go get that one. There must be something special about that. Why? Because you and I have a sin nature. If I told you you can't eat of that tree, you think, there must be something really good about that tree. Let me go check that out. And here's the thing, is that for every one of us, because we have this nature, we have a tendency to, okay, if if you tell me I can't do that, there must be something really good about doing that. God didn't start there. 
God said, listen, all of the trees that are out here, all of the trees are good. You can eat of any tree. You see, for you and I, when we get fixated, I think for most of us, we have an area of weakness in our life. And we have a tendency to get fixated on that area of weakness. It could be some sort of addiction. It could be some sort of, of, of lust, desire in our life. And we say, man, if I just had that, I would be satisfied. And, and what happens is we go on and we do life. We don't realize, man, God has given us this whole garden full of really, really good stuff. But we get fixated on the one thing. We say, man, if I could just have that, my life would be complete. If I could just have that, man, there would be discovery in my life. I'd feel good about my life. And if I could just have that, then everything would be really, really good. God began with all of this is good. There's only one thing you can't do. Don't do that. And Eve goes and and does that. But we all, from time to time, do that. I used to be a youth pastor. I remember talking a number of times to students who were like in middle school getting ready to go into high school. And on quite a few occasions, these middle schoolers, these eighth graders would get so excited, like, man, I can't wait to high school. I can't wait to get into high school and I can start to go to parties and be part of that scene and, and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, what, what do you think that's going to bring you? And like, I don't know, but it's going to be a cool scene and everyone's going to love it. And it's going to be a good time and everything's going to be great. And I would challenge them and say, be careful, because sometimes the things that you long for is not, when you get there, it's not what you thought it was going to be, and it's going to be destructive in your life. They get all excited, and they go and do that, and they find out it wasn't exactly what they, it wasn't at all like they thought it was going to be. And later on, they regret some of the choices they made. But at that moment, that's what they lived for. God came, Satan comes here to, to bring these three Ds. The first one was to bring division. The second one was to bring doubt. And the third one was to bring denial. The serpent had said to her, she had said uh, what the rule was, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said, verse 4, to the woman, you will not surely die. He denies what God said, you will not surely die. That's not what's going to happen. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when this woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Satan came first trying to divide the family. Second, he came to try to cast doubt upon what God had said. And third one, he flat out denies that what God said was true. Why? Because he wanted to destroy the family. The very same tactics, by the way, that he uses today. He comes in and he brings these same three tools that he has in his toolbox. He says, I want to to come bring division to the family. I want to come and I want to start to bring doubt. I want to bring suspicion into relationships. I want the husband questioning the wife and the wife questioning the husband. I want the parents against kids and kids against parents. Because as long as they're focused on those relationships and there's animosity, they're not going to focus on building up God's kingdom and they're not going to be able to get along. Because ultimately, if Jesus isn't at the center of the relationship, it's never going to work anyway. He says, as long as there's friction, they're not focusing on putting Jesus at the center, and society's not going to flourish because this is the main building block for all of society. Which means we have to do something about this, and we have to do something about this right now. Point number two is this. The best time to transform your family is today. Can you imagine... The pain that would have been avoided 
the suffering, the death that would have been avoided had Adam and Eve at that point said, no, let's deal with this now. Let's not put this off. Let's not wait. Let's deal with this stuff now. And, and, and for most of us, we say, man, I, I know our family. I know our family could get better. It's not terrible right now. I know it could get better. But right now, life is busy. Right now, there's a lot going on. If I can just get through this week, next week's going to slow down a whole lot more. How many of y'all have ever said that before? And how many realize, man, next week, life got a whole lot busier? <laughs> like, life doesn't slow down. News for us all, it's not going to happen. We have to be intentional about developing our family relationships right now. It has to be purposeful. It has to be our desire to say, man, right now I want to deal with this. I can't change the past. There are a lot of times I wish I could. I wish I could go back and, and relive choices I made 20 years ago and say, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I'd go back and fix relationships that have been severed. And, and, and sometimes it's still possible. And sometimes those relationships are now gone. Those people are now gone. I wish I'd go back and change the past. I can't. It might make today a little bit more challenging. But if I don't deal with it today, it's going to make tomorrow exponentially harder. I can't change the past. But for everyone here, our family legacy begins today. Our legacy is defined by anything from this point on. And so we have to commit right now to say, hey, I want to do my best to begin that family legacy right now. Point number three, surrender is the key to freedom. Surrender is the key to freedom. I go back to the first analogy I was using. When Rocky was there, he knew there was no hope. Apollo Creed was not going to win that fight. He was getting beat to a pulp. And he should have thrown in the towel but he didn't. I said this to us early on. I said, man, we need to learn how to throw in the towel when it comes to our relationships. But I want us to understand what I'm trying to say about that. Throwing in the towel isn't giving up. It's giving in to the plan and purpose of God for my life. See, when I hold on, like most men, I tend to be stubborn. I think like most people, I tend to be stubborn. I just know how to man thinks, so I think that, that I tend to be stubborn. And when I'm stubborn, I say, man, if, if I just keep doing what I'm doing, and if I just do it harder, that, then if it, all, all it means is I just got to, if it's not working, let me keep doing this harder, and eventually it's going to get through, and it doesn't. We're repeating the same behaviors over and over, and there's never going to be success. So surrendering is saying, listen, sometimes my plan isn't God's plan. Sometimes my purpose isn't God's purpose. And so I have to stop holding on so tight to this and say, God, I want to surrender to your plan, to your purpose. Throwing in the towel when it comes to our relationships is not giving up on the relationship. I want us to understand that. It's quite the opposite, saying, I, I think this relationship is so important that I'm going to give up on trying to do things my way. And I'm going to give in to the plan and purpose that God has for that relationship. And so here's what we're going to do. Number one, I don't know. There's some people in the first service this morning that, I mean, this is where God had them at. So I don't know, maybe in the second service there are people that are here. Uh, first of all, we talk about surrendering to the will of God in our life and, and really giving in to his plan. We want to do that for a family, for our families. But we first want to do that for our lives individually. And so just a moment, we're going to have a, a time of commitment. And if you're at a spot in your life where you said, man, I've never given my life to Jesus before, but today I'm going to stop doing things my way. I'm going to give in to the plan and purpose that God has 
from my life first. We can give you a chance to respond to that and say, yeah, that's where I'm at. And then for everybody else, if you already made that commitment, I'm going to ask you to consider giving in to something else this morning. We have at the bottom of your notes, there's this commitment time. And it says this. It says, if you go ahead and put that words up on the screen. It says this. Believing that my family's legacy begins today and begins with me. I commit my life to Jesus Christ. I commit to live out his plan and purpose for the call he has placed upon me. That means to the best of my ability, I will choose to surrender to God in my thoughts, plans, and actions. And I also choose to commit to lead my present and my future family in their pursuit of Jesus. And so we're just going to give you a chance. In just a moment, I'm going to give everyone a chance to commit. If, if you never made a commitment for Jesus at all, in just a moment, we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to give you a chance to stand up and commit to that. But then for everyone else, if you say, man, from this point on, I want to begin my family's legacy, and I want to do this the right way, I'll give you a chance to stand up and commit to that, and then we'll pray for the church as a whole. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Listen, as I shared, I don't know where people's hearts are, and maybe this was the first time you're confronted with, I want to do my family right, but I've never done my life right. I've never surrendered to Jesus. I know that he died to take away my sin, but there's never been a personal response on my behalf to choose to call upon him. If that's where you're at right now, if you're saying, man, I want to give my life to Jesus, I want to surrender to his plan and his purpose first for my life. If that's where you're at, if you're making that first time decision this morning, if you would, just go ahead and stand up right where you're at. And then for everybody else as we gather this morning, we just read a commitment. A commitment that was shared for the first time just a little bit over an hour ago in our first service. And the commitment was saying that, God, I want to do things when it comes to, I'm trying to do my life right, but I want to learn how, what it means to lead my family right. And I want to commit to do it, not my way, but, but God, your way. If you want to commit to that right now, if you, want to, if you would, just stand up right now and say, I want to commit to, to leading my family God's way. And we're going to pray a prayer of commitment. If you're saying right now, yes, I want to lead my family God's way, that this whole, this whole series has been building up to this moment. And I want to lead, I want to be the leader because for every one of us, fathers, mothers, children, there's a role that we play. There's a commitment for us to take part. So if that's where you're at, if you would stand right now, and I want to pray a prayer of commitment over you. Let's pray together. Father, for the people that are standing right now, they're, they're, they're giving a serious commitment. Their commitment is, the saying, is saying that right now, beginning with this moment and beginning with their lives, they want to start to begin to lead their families in a proper way. God, I pray for the people standing that you'd give them the strength to live out that conviction. You'd give them the time to live out that commitment, God, that there would be intentionality in the way that they build up their relationships with their family members. God, if they're single, maybe it means future family or maybe it's family that's already there that they can have influence in. God, if they're married, how they lead their spouse. If they have children, how they lead their kids. If they are children, the way they respond to their parents. God, that they choose to do family the way that you intended. God, that's not always the easiest today. In fact, often in life, it's, it's a challenge 
today. But the challenge, the investment today pays off immensely tomorrow. And so God, as they commit to give their thoughts, their words, their actions, fully surrender to Jesus, that in that surrender they'll find freedom. They're giving in to the plan and purpose that you have for them. God, I pray you give them the strength, the clarity, and the conviction to live that out. That Jesus would lead them every step of the way. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen.